Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Perringer. Well, tonight I want to look in uh, Daniel. I'm going to reread the last part of chapter 1, but we're really going to concentrate on uh, chapter 2 of Daniel. Just to remind you kind of what is uh, going on here. Um, Daniel and his friends, they've been taken into captivity into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. They were these young, bright, handsome boys who were part of the royal family. And so Nebuchadnezzar wanted to take them to make them work in his government, to train them to be part of his bureaucracy. Now part of the training that they received included something that would cause them to compromise their faith. But they refused to compromise their faith. Now when they refused, they didn't do it in a negative way. As I often like to say, don't be a jerk. They weren't jerks about it. But they, 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 they still didn't compromise, though. But they cast it in a positive light. They actually offered an alternative. And they were given grace in the eyes of those all around them. And because they didn't compromise, God equipped them to excel at what they did. And so it might be good to just revisit uh, verses 17 through 21 in Daniel chapter 1 to see how God blessed them for their stand. It says in Daniel chapter 1, verses 17 through 21, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. And so they excelled at, at what they did. They were at the top of their game. They were at the top of their class. But just because they were some of the top dogs, that doesn't mean that God was done training them and growing them and preparing them for what would come in the future. I mean, they are just getting started in this journey. And God knows what's going to happen in the future. He has his sovereign plans and purposes. And so he is never going to stop training and growing and preparing his people for whatever it is their part is in everything. I mean, we all have a part in God's plan if we are his people. And the growing and the training and the preparing never stops. I mean, for Daniel and his friends, they were top of their game. They had success. They 
I mean, it says that the king found them to be ten times better than anybody else that was in his government. And they were placed in upper management. But just because they were placed in these upper roles doesn't mean that that was the end goal. I mean, God didn't prepare them just to get to that point. There was so much more to come. God had placed them where he did for future use, future displays of his glory, future help in fulfilling his will and advancing his plans. And even in these top positions that they were already in, God had some learning for them to go through. But sometimes the learning that God has for his people includes going through crisis. And we don't like that. We don't like necessarily like to talk about that. We would like to think that if God is going to train us and grow us and prepare us, it would be some sort of bright, sunshiny, walk-in-the-park kind of thing. Lord, if you're going to prepare me for some great work, make it easy and comfortable. Unfortunately, that's not the way God works. God uses the difficulties. God uses the trials. God uses crisis to prepare us. Whatever is down the road, whatever it is he has for us, whatever he has in store, sometimes he'll use crisis to get us ready. And not only to prepare us, he'll use the crisis and the trial and the tribulation to give greater displays of his character and of his glory. And so, just like we'll see, you know, Daniel... And, and the boys, as I call them, they went through some crisis to be prepared, to receive some training, to get some lessons, to get them some learning. We might go through the same. But we can always run to the Lord of peace that we sang about, the God who gives peace, even in the midst of that storm. Now tonight we're going to do things a little bit different. We're just going to kind of take uh, the first part of chapter 2 bit by bit and, uh, and see what this crisis is. Before next week, we kind of talk about the resolution of the crisis. But let's begin in, in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 2. It says that in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Now, in this part of, of Scripture, Nebuchadnezzar had somewhat recently been, uh, been crowned the king. He had been off leading his father's army versus various enemies, including Egypt. But then while he was off to battle, uh, his father died. And so he ascended to the throne. And right around the same time that he ascended to the throne, he besieged Jerusalem. And he, he started taking captives out of Judah. And, and, and so it seems that very soon after, uh, you know, he, ro he rose up to be king. He had gotten Daniel and he got, had gotten Daniel's friends and brought them to Babylon to start the training. I mean, he immediately started 
taken captives from the uh, vassal states that he had cr uh, already created uh, with some of the other nations. Now, in it, earlier in Daniel chapter 1, it had said that Daniel and the boys went through a three-year training. And so, soon after they finished their three-year training, the king had a dream. It actually says dreams, and so the dream was repeated a, a few times, I believe. But after this three-year training, the king had these dreams, and they troubled him. Now, I know it, the, the timeline here, it, it sounds strange because it says the second year of Nebuchadnezzar, and it was a three-year training. But what would happen is for the pagan nations and, and the way that the Babylonians did things, the year of ascension was considered, you know, that it wasn't counted. So there was the year of ascension, then there was the first year and the second year. In Jewish reckoning, and on our reckoning, it would have been three years, but, you know, it says it's the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And so soon, within his being made king, he had a dream that troubled him. Now, being a pagan, I mean, the, his religion was very superstitious. And they, they would think that every single dream had some special meaning. And he had this dream that bothered him, and he couldn't figure it out, and he wanted to figure it out. Now, you know, I mentioned that pagans were very superstitious, but I don't want to discount the fact that in the Bible, it tells us that God gave dreams. God communicated through dreams. Jacob had a special dream of angels ascending and descending. Joseph had special dreams that, that foretold his future about how his family would bow down to him. Bow down to him. He would be placed uh, somewhere in power. You know, and he, he actually helped interpret dreams. He interpreted the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer that were in prison with him. And then eventually he, he interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh, dreams that God had given. And there's so many more examples that God does give dreams. But not every dream we have is a message from God. Let's face it, sometimes we just have weird dreams because we just have weird dreams. Weird dreams happen. Doesn't mean it's from God. If God is going to use a dream to give a message, I think he'll make it very clear that it is uh, from him so that there's no mistaking it. But King Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't follow the God of Israel. He didn't follow Yahweh. He didn't worship the God of Israel. Now, he believed that Yahweh existed because he believed that tons of gods existed. He thought that Yahweh was just another local deity that his gods defeated because, you know, seemingly defeated because they were able to, to bring Judah under their thumb, so to speak. And so, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar just thought, well, Yahweh, he, he's just another god that my gods defeated. My gods were more powerful not knowing that God was in complete sovereign control of everything that was going on. Now, Nebuchadnezzar thought that his God had sent the dream. But in reality, it was the one true God that had sent him the dream. But because he didn't understand the dream, and he didn't understand who had sent the dream, he was very stressed over what in the world does this dream mean. He knew it had significance. He knew maybe to a point that it had something to do with his rule, but he didn't know exactly what. 
And so he did what a normal pagan king would do. He called his advisors, at least a certain class of advisors. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And so this was very normal for a pagan court to have these magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and, and whatnot. I, I mean, that would, that would just bother a, a good Jew to no end because, uh, I mean, the law is very clear. And magicians, enchanters, sorcerers were to be killed. And they were not to be a part of what they did. But this was, that was some of his advisors. And it was part of their duty, this, this realm of the supernatural. Really, we would call it, it was the realm of the occult. And so he had these folks doing occultish kind of stuff for him. Now, you know, and, and, and it was just one part of his government. You know, you might think about, okay, so like our, our president has a cabinet that represents different departments. You got the Department of Homeland Security, you got the Department of Treasury, Department of Defense, and things like that. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's government had different departments also. And so he called up his Department of the Occult. And dream interpretation was part of their duties. They were a very superstitious people, like I said, and so they thought there was significance in every single thing that was going on, you know, and they thought there was something supernatural behind everything. And, and so they, they, they were prepared to read into whatever it was and come up with an interpretation according to whatever their God, their God, you know, thought, or so they thought. So these, these, this department of the occult, they were eager to serve. If you look at verse 4, it says, Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and it's interesting, Daniel, the book of Daniel now changes from Hebrew to Aramaic in language for several chapters. But it says, they said, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. So for them, it was a normal day on the job. The king asked for an interpretation of the dream. And so they would just kind of make up whatever. I mean, according to their training. I mean, supposedly they were trained on how to interpret dreams. And, but, you know, they just made up whatever. The king says the dream. They make up whatever it means. The king is pacified. You go on with your day. Go about your business. But Nebuchadnezzar decides to put a little bit of a twist. To the normal routine. Look at verses 5 and 6. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. So here's the twist. If these guys had some sort of connection to the supernatural, not only should they be able to interpret the dream, they should be able to tell you what 
the dream was. Come on, you guys say you're connected to the gods. You guys say you're dealing with the supernatural. Should be nothing for you to not only tell me the interpretation, tell me the dream itself. Now, part of it may be he was testing them, but the other part might be something that happens very often. I know it happens to me, it probably happens to you. You have a very vivid dream. And it's just out of this world. It's, it's wild. You wake up. You know you had this weird, wacky dream. But then when you start thinking about it, what was the details of that dream? You're like, I can't remember. I don't remember what happened in the dream. All I remember was that it was wild and it was wacky. I mean, I'm not the only one that has weird, wacky dreams. I'm not... Okay, maybe I am. I don't know. Okay, I have weird, wacky dreams that make no sense whatsoever, but you know what? You just go with it. So you don't, you know, you don't, you, you know you had a dream, but you don't remember the details. Well, that might be going on here, right? So, so King Nebuchadnezzar, he, he might not, he knows he had a dream that had significance, but he might not remember all the details. And so if someone were to tell him what the dream was, then he'd be like, that's it. That was it. That was, and so he, he might be testing them. Okay, are you just making stuff up? Or can you tell me the dream and its interpretation? So this is how they respond. Verse 7. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show you its interpretation. Uh-oh, the jig is up. Nebuchadnezzar might find out we're frauds. And so like good politicians, they ignore what was requested of them and they try and twist it to their advantage. They're definitely politicians, right? So they're like, no, you, you know, I mean, they, they were just threatened. Look, I'm going to... I'm going to tear you limb from limb. I'm going to destroy you, your families, and everything you have. If you don't tell me the dream, tell me the interpretation. And so they, they, they just kind of twist the words. And, and they're like, look, just, just tell us the dream. We'll tell you what it means. But the king isn't going to have any of that. Look at verses 8 and 9. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time. Because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar was no fool. I mean, you don't become one of the most powerful kings in all of history by being a dummy. He knew their political tactics. They were just trying to buy time so they could figure out a way, well, maybe we can manipulate him to change his mind. You know, but given enough time, the king is going to settle down and he's going to change his request, or he's going to at least tone down his request. And then they'll make up whatever, make up their interpretation and go on their merry way. But the king wasn't about to let them weasel themselves out of this one. 
The king is like, look, you are the department of the occult. You are supposedly connected to the supernatural. If you tell me the dream, then I know you can also tell me the interpretation. Period. That's the way it's going to be. What were they going to do? Verses 10 and 11. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asked is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. You know, that might not have been the best response for them to give at the time. Because they're pretty much telling the king that you're being unreasonable. I'm not sure the king who just threatened to tear you limb from limb and destroy you, your family, and everything you own, I'm not sure it's the smartest thing to say you're being unreasonable. But that's what they do. They're saying no one can do what the king has demanded. No one in this entire world, they say. No king has ever asked such a thing. Now, I, I might be reading in, into this a little bit, but when I, I saw those verses, what popped into my head is what I think they were trying to get at I mean, they were kind of taking a swipe at Nebuchadnezzar. I think that they were implying your dad would never have made such a request because he had just become king, right? And so a lot of these guys probably worked for his dad. And, 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 and so they were saying, no, no king would do this. Your dad would never have done this. Ooh, you know, it probably wasn't a good thing to bring up his dad. But you know, you, when you read what they say, they're kind of cutting their own legs out from under them because they, they say, well, no one can show that except the gods. No one can do this except the gods. Well, if, if that's the case, why do you need magicians and enchanters if only the gods can do it? Now, despite themselves, they were correct in a sense. There is no human that could do it. But their interpretation of it was all wrong, the, their interpretation of the situation. Because there are no pagan gods that can do what the king requested. But you know what? There is the one true God who could. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand that yet. God is the one who gave the dream. God is the one who can reveal the dream. And only God is the one who can interpret the dream. They weren't there yet. And as the saying goes, things escalated kind of quickly. Look at verses 12 and 13. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So Nebuchadnezzar had enough of, 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 his, of the whole thing. But you know what? His wrath didn't just fall on the enchanters and the magicians and the Chaldeans. They didn't just fall on the department of the occult. He was so 
furious with his government, he commanded that every department be destroyed. I mean, it'd be like the, the president saying, let's execute all, you know, all the cabinet and all the departments. I mean, every department was to be disposed of, including Daniel and his friends. Every wise, everyone who's a wise man in my government, kill them all. But here again, we see the spirit that God had given to Daniel and his friends. Look at verses 14 through 16. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Ariok. Listen to that. He replied with prudence and discretion to Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Ariok, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Ariok made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So here again is Daniel using wisdom in handling the situation. He doesn't just start raging against the machine, so to speak. He, he, he doesn't start murmuring, complaining, going off on, on social media and, and things like that. He uses the wisdom that God gives him. Prudence, as the word was used, and discretion. He goes into the king to seek some time to figure things out. And then he's going to help the king out. He, he, he requests of the king, look, just give me and my friends a certain amount of time and we will find the information that you seek. And because Daniel and his friends, they, they were the top, as it was shown earlier in chapter 1, they were the top of his advisors and God had given them grace in the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar and all those around them, the king agrees to their terms. He he agrees to their terms. He doesn't agree to the terms of his enchanters and whatnot. Again, the king is no dummy. He can tell when people are lying and when people are not. And he, he trusted Daniel, and he said, okay. But the threat of death was still over their heads. But here is the key difference. Daniel and his friends know where the dream came from. They know who can interpret the dream. They know who that, to seek in order to find all this out. They know to seek after God. They know that, that God is the one that sent the, sent the dream, and he will use them, Daniel and his friends, to glorify his name in the presence of these pagans. And, and, and they knew that, that Daniel gave this dream for a reason, or God gave this dream for a reason for Daniel and his friends to interpret. And so they're going to they're gonna seek God's face to figure that out, and we'll look at that next week. And, and so here's the thing. They are in a crisis situation. The, the death is over their heads. The threat of death is looming large over them. But Daniel and his friends knew that God would use them in this situation to allow them to reveal to the king who God is and to reveal to the king what God is doing. And so, and, and so 
in the midst of a crisis, instead of fretting and complaining like most humans would, they sought to figure out what God had for them to do and to learn. God was going to use this crisis to prepare them, and God was going to use this crisis to show himself, to reveal himself to them, to Nebuchadnezzar, to Nebuchadnezzar's court. And God would use this crisis to do it. And, and so we can't allow our crises, that's plural, right, crises, to pass by without learning what it is God has to learn and seeing how God will display himself through it. I mean, you, God might be doing this to reveal something about himself to you, reveal something about God, reveal himself through you to somebody else, learn, maybe grow your relationship with him or others, maybe learn a new aspect of God you never knew before, or just watch him just show himself out, so to speak. There's a lot of different reasons God might have you go through this crisis but it will never go to waste. Eventually, it'll be for your good and his glory. But whatever the reason might be, God wants to use that time of crisis for you to seek him, for you to trust him, for you to learn something about him that will then prepare you for his use sometime in the future. It could be decades. It could be mere hours or days. But he is using that crisis for a purpose. He, he will not let your crisis go to waste, so to speak. But now it's a matter of trust. And it's a matter of rest and believing he is the God of peace. Believing he is your fortress and your refuge in your time of need. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening and God bless.